Hello and welcome to our latest GCP short produced in partnership with Risks and all about the evolving reinsurance strategies of captives. Joining me for the next 20 minutes are Oliver Schofield, managing partner at the firm, and David Hulley, who joined Risks as a partner in July 2022. Ollie and David discussed a growing number of options and reinsurance players available to captives, the importance of getting a sound reinsurance strategy in place from the beginning, and the changing market environment. But David began by telling us a bit about his background in alternative risk transfer and captives. I have spent the last 14 years at Allianz where I was focusing on a lot of corporate and captive-related deals, also putting in place with my colleagues a number of ART deals, so multi- or multi-line structured deals. And I was also the market manager for Israel, which was quite a significant book. And uh, luckily enough, an opportunity came up to join Risks a few months ago. And since then, I've been working on a number of new uh, captive-related projects. Fantastic. And we'll come on to kind of some, some of those areas in a bit more detail in a second. Ollie, why were you uh, keen for David to join Risks, and, and what does he bring uh, to the team? Well, as we continue to expand our platform across the world, uh, it's not just about having more people. It's also about having the appropriate skill sets that we're looking for as we continue to build our product line. David, as a very well-experienced ART specialist working in the large corporations in the marketplace, along with his long list of corporate uh, connections in the, in, the, in the insurance space, enables us to actually really push ahead with our agenda when it comes to ART advisory. Now, obviously, as you know, we also have Veronique Mert-Evans on the team um, who brings complementary skills to, to David. And between the two of them, they will be able to push ahead on our ART advisory space. Fantastic. Now, David, a pretty big, broad question for you. Uh, and I'm talking about this with, with a few different people at the moment. It seems like a big topic in a captive world. It should always be a big topic, which is how, how is the reinsurance market evolving for captives, do you think, at the moment? What's changing or how's the dynamics changing? Well, it, there's a continu continuing process over the last handful of years with a number of increasing number of players, increasing number of requirements from various different captives, different types of captives being set up that need either a structured product or structured fronting or a, a specialty reinsurance approach. And so some of that's multi-year, multi-line, some of that's um, more esoteric. And uh, are there more options than ever before, do you think? Or are, they, are there similar options in terms of the structures that are available to captives, but there's just uh, more participants and insurers willing to play ball or, or even promote those, those structures? It's a mixed response to that question. I'll try to structure it uh, as best I can. So, I mean, on the big corporate captive side, you've got some of the basic structures which are being applied to more and more circumstances. So you have the, the three-year structure, the multi-year, multi-line, the different ways of volatility management. And so the nuances that are complicating it are it's like it's being applied to new perils, new lines of business, new scenarios. Then there's also the likes of the, the smaller captives, which we're seeing a lot more of. And these are reacting to specific instances of the hard market where you might have a a much smaller company than you would have seen in the past, um, putting in place a much smaller captive to deal with just one line of business. And then there's also the growth of the producer-owned insurance captive, which is something completely different, and that's, that's a completely different type of, of underwriting because it's portfolio underwriting. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the basic structures are the same. 
And is multi-year, we talk, we've talked before in the podcast a few times about kind of multi-year, multi-line, cross-class solutions. They've been around for a long time. Captives, clients have been using them and working with uh, different carriers and the brokers to structure them. And they becoming more mainstream and ingrained, do you think, in the large account space? Yes, uh, especially in the large account space because over time there was a handful coming in every year and none of them being shut down. So when, when you start thinking about, say, the Fortune 500 and every year there was more and more adding to the existing pool and 10 years down the line we've got a lot of them out there and a lot of them are being used for much broader purposes than they were originally put in place for. And that's part of a lot of the work that we do is say, okay, you've, you've had this strategy for the last five or 10 years. Let's have a refresh on it and sort of see what, what the economics look like to expand. So it's one of those cases where, a bit like where we hear, if risk goes into a captive, it often doesn't come out or the commercial market might not see it uh, much again if the, once the risk has found its way into a captive. With these uh, multi-line, multi-year, cross-class solutions, do you think they also benefit by the scale? So if more captives are signing up for them and embracing them, does that make it easier for more captives to embrace them? Do you see where I'm going with that? Do you think that the infrastructure is only going to get better as more clients embrace it? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, a big part of that is the, the new carriers who are coming in and doing more and more. As we see a lot of the structures becoming accepted across different carriers too there's the establishment more and more of a co-insurance market and then for the really big players that means that you can get up to say a billion of limit as has happened in the past recent past and you can start coming up with stuff that is relevant for a really large multi-billion turnover company at the same time for much smaller companies the costs are coming down so all the you know with more players Perhaps it's competition, perhaps it's just evolution, but the economics are improving for across the board. And and more perils are being included and more reinsurance options, even outside of traditional sort of ART approaches. There's there's a number of different people like Vest2 who are coming in, and that's quite interesting as well because it's basically more access to the ILS. And then as the space grows, there's more service providers who will do a various different uh, administrative functions, uh, pricing functions, and things like that. So it's a much bigger ecosystem than it was just a handful of years ago. Ollie, David touched upon that we're seeing more smaller captives. Even even in Europe, we're seeing you know, monoline captives. We're seeing smaller captives. We know that large captives seem to only be getting larger and more sophisticated. But are these some some of these more say advanced or sophisticated solutions that we're talking about? Are they? relevant yet for smaller captives? What, what kind of scale do you think is required for these to be deployed? Well, my honest belief is that, yes, they are relevant to the smaller captives because if you think about um, why smaller captives are being set up, in often cases it's because those smaller captives can't get the cover for the exposure that they have, which is critical to the survival of their business. So we're working with a particular UK entity at the moment. We're just going through the pre-feasibility phase. And we know exactly what they're looking for. And we also know that their, their line of cover for which they're seeking uh, reinsurance is one of the toughest to place. So they can't just go to the traditional London market or the traditional international market and say, can we have a five million layer excess of a half a million aggregate retention? Because those markets will not look at it. 
So we have to go to the alternative risk transfer markets and more sophisticated professional reinsurers to be able to source that capital, that capacity for their exposures. I think the other way of looking at it is also that when you think about multi-line, multi-year, I placed the, my, my first ever multi-line, multi-year placement was in the early 1990s yeah. for a UK captive. Now, that was a tiny program, but what the captive wanted to do was to increase its overall gross retention without increasing its net retention so it could effectively arbitrage the pricing at the front end of the program with the back-end aggregate stop-loss, second-loss program. Now, that was an ART deal in the sense that it was an alternative way of dealing with the risk transfer requirements of that particular entity. So it will obviously depend, going back to the original question, on what are they trying to achieve. If it's just a traditional property casualty placement that they're looking to do some form of ART structure on for a very, very small captive, then the chances are that mathematically it won't work out. Mm. But it doesn't mean it shouldn't be explored because you never know what you might find. David, what's your view on that on that scale question? Is it kind of depending on what the risks are, what, what kind of capital they're, they're seeking, or is there a, a definite number or scale? Well... In terms of the various different relevant scales, it's more a driver of two things. One is the traditional established markets. How does it compare against those? So in an extreme example, where you need to have cover for contractual reasons or statutory reasons, just not available, then all of a sudden, you know, even, even if it's small scale, you have to do it. And we've seen, and, and Ollie has, has set up a captive for just that purpose, uh, to keep a company running. Yeah. And, uh, you know, similar stories have happened in the PI market and other places. So, you know, wh where there's no other alternative, then it's not so price sensitive. Once you start getting up into the other end of the scale, like the really big companies where they're just like, well, we don't need the risk transfer. We're, we're too big. We make more than 100 million before breakfast every day. Yeah. We just we want a economically efficient, call it cheap way to manage our internal risk function, and it's just just philosophically, and that's been going for decades yeah. with like some of the, the you know the mega companies around the world, and in between you you have a mix of motivations, and it really comes down to a client's mandate from their board. Is it more about risk management? Is it about saving money? Is it about something else? That's where we try and, and we do create a implementation strategy, often around a captive and often around the sort of like oh, sort of reinsurance or insurance funding uh, mechanisms to, to meet those goals. Ollie, you, um, yeah, I've known you for a long time and, and I know you've been involved in, in a variety, a real diversity of different captive types, whether a setup or, or reviews or, or reinsurance stuff. I think in probably fair to say in recent years, I've mostly known you and come across you through setting up new captives and, and doing feasibility studies with companies. So it's really interesting that now you've got David and Veronique in place where you're looking at that kind of, if I can crassly call it, back-end uh, <laughs> uh, discussion as well. How much, when you're doing the feasibility studies with new prospective captive clients, how much does the reinsurance discussion strategy come into that to the original rationale and feasibility at that early stage? I think it's very important that any prospective captive owner considers how much they want to retain net versus how much they want to buy reinsurance. 
And as part of the feasibility study process, I think it is incredibly important that anybody conducting a feasibility study has the ability to make observations and comments about the appropriate level of attachment of a reinsurance programme, the potentially expected costs of that reinsurance programme, and you're obviously working in conjunction with the corporate's existing brokers, we'd, uh, we'd look to try and come up with a, a, a programme structure that makes sense and is priced at a, 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 a point whereby you're not going to end up blowing the whole financial rationale of having the captive in the first place. Yeah. So it's very important. But we also have to keep in mind the time it takes to actually go through the whole captive process. So... We talk about what is a captive, how does it work, why might it be of interest to the organisation. Then we do the feasibility, and that could take six, eight, ten weeks. And in that part of the feasibility, we talk to the broker, we maybe talk to a couple of markets, um, David and Veronique do their stuff, um, and then we present the report. At which point, if the client decides to go ahead and sell up the captive, you could be looking at another anything between three weeks, six months, before the captive is ready to start underwriting. Now, of course, given the volatility of the reinsurance market that we've seen over the last couple of years, whatever is discussed in the first place a year earlier could be completely yeah. irrelevant 12 mm. months down the line. So, yes, it is important, but it also has to be taken on the basis of it. We, you have to recognise that that price may be entirely different. Now, where it becomes less important or not important at all is where we've been working with clients who know they want to take, for example, a $1 million uh, per occurrence retention and a two million net aggregate, and that's all they want. And it's a program that's going to be aggregated throughout, such as a, I know, a PI program. Um, then they don't need to worry about the reinsurance because the excess layers will just drop down once they've eroded it. So it is important, but there have to be caveats to that. Yeah, no, really fascinating. Um, and one of the things that just crossed my mind as well, actually, was and you only hear, well, I've only heard less than a handful of examples of this happening, one high-profile example of captive being set up, everyone's really excited, massive loss comes in the first year, captive gets closed down two years later. Um, I think it's rare. Um, I don't know if it's just a result of bad planning or bad feasibility, but if having the correct reinsurance structure in place, presumably that's a way to mitigate that kind of first-year mega-claim disaster. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly something that we reference in our reports is that, uh, you know, you could have the uh, Annus Horribilis day one. Yeah. And if you if that happens, what does that mean for the captive over the next five years? So in our five-year financial performer, we're looking at expected case, best case, worst case. And the worst case will very much be that in the first year, they have a five-year aggregation of losses in that first year. Um, so maybe that's one in 1,000, one in 10,000 year scenario. And with the, the appropriate reinsurance programs in place, the whole point is that that should enable the captive to continue to function into year two and beyond without having to go into that uh, that nuclear option of close down. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it is, it's rare, and hopefully it's rare because these things are thought through and they have been planned for. But it's actually something that when I'm talking to someone who's completely new to captives, it's often a question they ask me. And as someone who's not a technical expert, I usually find struggle to find the right way to explain how that shouldn't happen or why that shouldn't happen. Let's just quickly then talk about the broader marketplace as, as we see it. Indications have been, I think, for a little while that the commercial market has softened or maybe just stabilised in, in many lines of business with a notable exception of cyber and probably a few others. But there have been other recent large loss events such as Hurricane Ian, and they're certainly not going to help the market environment. 
Ollie, have you seen that event in particular impact the market and, and have any kind of knock-on effects on, on conversations you're having regarding captives? Yes, uh, absolutely, we have. We, we we were talking to somebody earlier on today, an underwriter, who was telling us that um, as a direct result of Ian, uh, he expects to see up to a 10% increase in property premium renewals coming up at the end of the year. Wow. Because you know, that, that is going to be a devastatingly high loss in terms of pure insurance volume. Now, we are beginning to see some signs of stabilisation um, across certain lines of cover. And certainly in the UK PI market, uh, for certain financial lines exposed businesses, uh, we have seen flat renewals. And we've actually seen one or two have a, a token reduction <laughs> based on the fact that maybe they've been the really good risk for the yeah. last five years. DNO we know has come off a few points, but then you have to consider where it's coming off from, yes. which it was incredibly high. In the dirty space, um, oil, gas, energy, um, so on, we are still seeing significant increase in premiums, more than 100%, because that's the way of the market just saying, we don't feel it's appropriate for us to write this business anymore. Yeah. Fair enough. But other lines, I'd say it's more of a stabilisation one thing we have to look out for, particularly in the casualty space, is the claims inflation. So forget UK inflation or wherever else people are based, but it's the inflation on those claims that are already out there. Um, and the costs of those are now going up as well. So that's a conundrum for the, for the reinsurers. Um, I think with the global uncertainty, whether that's from the, the market environment, the insurance market, reinsurance market environment, whether it's from the global economic situation, whether it's from uh, wars that are going on around the world, I would say that the market is still fairly fragile. And I would imagine that we will see rate increases from the reinsurers to the insurance companies at the forthcoming renewal season. Obviously, what will then be the question is how much of that, if any, will the insurers seek to pass on to their corporate clients? There's another consideration that we need to take into effect, and that's basically all these insurance companies have big investment portfolios, which are going to be extraordinarily impacted yeah. by what's happened in both the bond markets and, and to a lesser extent, the other investment categories. And so they could find uh, that they're taking uh, very painful losses here in the third quarter and maybe continuing on uh, for calendar year end. And that's going to also in, in indirectly impact on pricing because if they need to recover those costs and or raise additional capital in the financial markets in this environment, it could be quite tough. So they could find that they're in a position where they have to cut back on capacity on certain lines of business. And... We, we haven't really seen what the regulatory pressures are around solvency yet. Yeah. But I think as we get further into the year, there's going to be a bifurcation of the market, the ones that are in trouble and the ones that aren't in trouble. And so you might find some policies moving from one carrier to another because they're coming from various different pressures from head office. And as we said before, on the captive side of things, often when risk managers get a taste of what they can do with a captive and, and use it for certain things and they want to stick there. And I think that works also in the sense that some people might have felt they, if they were purely sent out of a captive for reactive reasons to the hardening market and that moment has passed, they might have gone, oh, actually, maybe we don't need to. I think maybe they'll be getting another shock and captive might come back on the table. It's always sensible to have a dynamic captive strategy and to ratchet up and ratchet down the amount of capacity you want to put through your captive depending upon the market price. 
But some of that could be window dressing. Some of that could be wholesale taking in and out yeah. uh, lines of business. But some of the realities, especially for the really big uh, captives, is that there's still a sensible amount of risk retention. That's a big difference between what your local uh, companies in the various different countries around the world want to have and what the core corporate wants to have. And for them, it, the captive's always there to manage the difference. Something we, we've talked about it in this episode, but um, something that I'm keen to write about and maybe do more podcast episodes about, Ollie, is actually just the reinsurance market. Now, we've talked about how maybe some of the dynamics have changed or some of the tools are changing or becoming more or less common. Do we talk enough about the reinsurance market in the captive world? I think there's certainly space for us to be able to talk more and more about the reinsurance market. The reinsurance market, to me, is one of the key component parts of the whole captive process. We have to have that capital, that capacity to support the captive's underwriting, and the captive shouldn't be relying on the direct insurance market to provide it with its reinsurance because there are reasons why they've gone into the captive route in the first place. My plea to the reinsurance market would be that when they see a captive inquiry, a captive submission, that they start from the basis that this is going to be a different type of risk. This is going to be a a well-risk managed risk. This is going to be a risk that doesn't have the huge unexpected claims the whole time. This is an organization that has challenging exposures and needs to work face-to-face, hand-in-hand with the reinsurance market to come up with capacity to help them with those non-conventional or harder-to-insure exposures. Now, I know that some reinsurers are absolutely welcoming that and embracing that, um, but as the world continues to change and evolve, as technology becomes even more complicated, risks themselves are becoming more extreme. We need the reinsurance market really to continue to play that important role in helping our captive clients to accept risk and then smooth out the cash flow of those risks. Well, thank you to Oliver and David for their insight into the world of reinsurance and captives. And I really think it is a topic we should all be paying a lot more attention to. If you want more information on risks and their service offering to captives, then visit their Friend of the Podcast page on our website. Links are in the episode show notes. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. (laughs) 